Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. This week, I wanted to continue looking at the relationship between art and rugby by looking at the way in which Rugby Union used literature to create its culture, especially during and after the First World War. Of course, the popularity of rugby owed much to a single book, Tom Brown's School Days, published in 1857. One of the book's purposes was to show that rugby football had a higher moral purpose than just sport. Its goal was to train young men to be leaders of the British Empire, to demonstrate the supposed superiority of the British in peace and in war. H. H. Almond, the headmaster of Loretto School in Edinburgh, argued that rugby's purpose was to produce a race of robust men with active habits, brisk circulations, manly sympathies and exuberant spirits who were ready to serve the British Empire. Without rugby, argued the journalist B. Fletcher Robinson, a close friend of Arthur Conan Doyle and, so it's claimed, the originator of the idea for the Hound of the Baskervilles, Britain's place as Europe's leading military nation would be lost. Rugby Union saw itself as the embodiment of the public school spirit of Victorian and Edwardian Britain, vigorous, masculine and militarist. This attitude is vividly portrayed in boys' school stories of the early 1900s, where the hero is often a rugger player and rugby's violence is portrayed as character-forming. For example... In Hugh Walpole's 1912 novel Prelude to Adventure, the hero plays poorly in a game until he is knocked almost unconscious. This renews his enthusiasm. As the book said, now there was no hesitation or confusion. A vigour like wine filled his body. He was amazing. He was everywhere. For such a man as he, there should only be air, love, motion, the begetting of children and the surprising splendour of a sudden death. This belief in the glory of death in battle could be seen in Victorian authors like Henry Newbolt, whose poem Vitae Lampada famously cried, play up, play up and play the game, and in the poet laureate Alfred Austin's line about who would not die for England, duty and death that evermore were twin. The public school curriculum was dominated by Greek classics, and the ancient Greek ideas about the warrior hero were transplanted to a Britain which felt that a coming European war was inevitable. Wartime death for young men was viewed as ennobling, something which was welcomed in the service of one's country. H. A. Vachel's 1905 novel The Hill presented this in the starkest possible way. To die young, clean, ardent, to die swiftly in perfect health, to die saving others from death or worse, disgrace, to die scaling heights. Is that not cause for joy rather than sorrow? This was not just rhetoric. As fears of a European war grew in the years before 1914, many rugby union clubs developed close links with the Territorial Army. Adrian Stoop and Ronald Poulton, captains both of Harlequins in England, were also Territorial Army officers. Poulton himself said he was frightfully keen on soldiering. So when World War I did break out in 1914, it was regarded, in the words of one rugby union writer, as the game for which they had been preparing for so many years. The war poet who best captured these emotions was Rupert Brooke. An old boy of rugby school, he had partnered Ronald Poulton as a schoolboy three-quarter and remained a keen fan of the game. His famous poem 1914 summed up the feelings of many rugby union players, especially the line in part three, We have come into our heritage. Even after 1918, RFU spokesmen continued to make full use of the pre-war glorification of the warrior's death. Writing in the Rugby Football International's Royal of Honour, the journalist E.H.D. Sewell declared of the dead, There is not one amongst us who does not envy them for their glorious death for king, for empire and for right. Bob Oakes, the president of the Yorkshire Rugby Union, shared similar sentiments. 
We now know how splendidly the rugby footballer, in common with every British soldier, fought, and I, how magnificently he died. Poetry became the most important way for rugby union to express these sentiments. Many examples can be found in Sewell's The Rugby Football International's Roll of Honour and the Yorkshire Rugby Union's Commemoration Book, both published a matter of months after the end of the war and full of patriotic poetry. Sewell's introduction to his book began with a quote from Thomas Mordaunt's poem The Call, written during the Seven Years' War, as long ago as the mid-1700s. Sound and sound the clarion, fill the five to all the sensual world proclaim, one crowded hour of glorious life is worth an age without a name. The Yorkshire commemoration book used even more poetry. Bob Oakes quoted Canadian poet Robert Service. And you'll never die, young fellow, my lads, while life is noble and true. For all our beauty and hope and joy, we will owe to lads like you. The centrepiece of the Yorkshire book was 150 photographic portraits of Yorkshire players killed in action. And this section began with extracts from Rupert Brooks 1914, starting with the famous words, If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. But the most self-consciously literary chapter was by RFU Secretary Roland Hill, who began with lines from the Trust, a poem published anonymously in the Times in 1918. And as they trusted, we the task inherit, the unfinished task for which our lives were spent. Hill also quoted from Ruskin and Shakespeare and alluded to Henry V's St Crispin's Day speech and the band of brothers to link the founders of rugby with the war effort. It must bring a certain amount of contentment to the band of brothers who at that period devoted no small amount of energy and time to the furtherance of our game that the principles bound up in the very structure of it have inspired actions unparalleled in the history of the world. The Band of Brothers phrase was a widely used expression in rugby union during and after the war. Also commonly used was the phrase Happy Warrior, taken from Wordsworth's 1806 poem. Alfred Olivant's poem on the death of England captain Ronald Poulton ended with the line, Amid his peers a happy warrior sleeps, and he could not resist drawing the parallel between rugby and war. All's well with England, Poulton's on his game. The idea that war was just another form of rugby was repeated across all levels of the game. Clifton, a club which lost 45 members in the war, commemorated its lost players with a poem that stated Go search ye o'er the battlefields, these names will be found again, each one inscribed on a cross to show how they played the game. They died, a handful of a mighty host, who gave their lives that you and I might live. They died like men in foreign lands. In the club, they will never die. Ilkley Grammar School expressed the same sentiments about its rugby-playing old boys who had gone to play the greater game. Can you hear the call? Can you hear the call? Now school, now school, play up. There's many a knock and many a fall for those who follow a rugger ball. The Ilkley breed has proved its worth wherever the bond of empire runs. It's interesting to note that there is essentially no difference between the rhetoric for schoolboys and for adults. Indeed, two of the poets quoted, R.W. Service and Alfred Olivant, also wrote books for children. As the literary critic Paul Fussell pointed out, the words lad and boy were absolutely central to the poetry and prose of World War I. It may even be the case that sport's ubiquitous use of the words lads and boys, and of girls in women's sport, was consolidated, if not entirely invented, during the First World War. This wartime rhetoric was also the way in which rugby union paid tribute to itself during, and especially immediately after, World War I. 
rugby union writers and officials articulated the feelings of many people in the middle classes for whom victory in the war seemed to prove that their pre-war values and attitudes were correct. And this meant that rugby union emerged from the First World War with a confidence and an authority unknown since the 1870s. Three months after the end of the war, an unnamed headmaster wrote to the Times to say, The war has come and gone, and one game has been justified triumphantly, not only as a pastime, but as an instrument of true education, and that is rugby football. Is it too much to hope that all schools will consider seriously the adoption of rugby football as the winter game for all the youth of the nation? Elite schools such as Ampleforth, Russell, the City of London, Radley, Malvern and many others took up rugby as a consequence of the First World War. In 1926, a furious debate erupted in the Times over Harrow headmaster Cyril Norwood's decision to replace soccer with rugby. Soccer supporters became so concerned that they organised a campaign to stop other public and grammar schools following suit. But it was to no avail. The rhetoric of the First World War meant that the rush to rugby was unstoppable and the number of English public and grammar schools affiliated to the RFU jumped from just 27 in 1919 to 133 just a decade later. It's very noticeable that the importance of World War I to the rhetoric of rugby union has also grown over the past three decades. This wasn't always the case. Neither the RFU's official histories of 1955 or 1971 devote more than a single page to the war. Although the world has also changed, this increasing use of the rhetoric of the war is also a result of rugby union's quest to find a new moral high ground for itself after abandoning its amateur principles in 1995, which all goes to show that, to quote the German poet Bertolt Brecht, the old always returns as the new. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. As I'm sure you know, my Twitter handle is at Collins Tony and my website is www.rugbyreloaded.com where you can find the show's complete archive and the show notes and links for this episode. So, until next week, thanks for listening.